as always, it's a joy to be with you. And thank you, Levi, for helping to lead music here. Some of you, I guess you've met, a number of you met him already, but Levi's one of our Minutemen at Southern. He's ready in a minute's notice to come and do things. So whether it's leading worship or any other element of ministry, he's uh, one of Southern's finest. We're thrilled to have him at the school there and the work that he's doing. But far beyond that, serving in the church and able to jump on the road and come here and be here a very short notice, which we love. So thankful for him and thankful to be with you all. I know when, uh, as a church grows in different seasons of life, there's always an adventure in ministry. And it's just a thrill to get to see how God continues to work his word in you and in this community. And we look forward to all the great things he'll do. If you have your copy of God's word, please take it and open it to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I want to remind us of the privilege that is to gather together and to have God's word and open it. I think often of the different missionaries that we work with throughout the world, and so many of them work in contexts where they don't have the freedom to do what we're doing right here, right now. Uh, the importance of gathering together and to having an open Bible where we can see together the, the mind of God as he wrote it out for us and to be taught and understand his word. How critical it is that we treasure that. We don't take it for granted. The freedoms that we enjoy are incredible in this world and in this country particularly. And yet there's so many around the globe who don't have that freedom. So while you turn to Luke chapter 10, let me just take us back in prayer one more time and ask God's grace on this study. Father, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for these friends who have gathered here. Thank you for their love for you, their hunger for your word. And Lord, in the moments that we now gather and study Luke chapter 10, I pray that you would clear our minds the, of the distractions of life, that you'd separate us from the things that pull for our attention, that you would tend to the details of everything else that needs to take place in a given day, and give us great joy in the study of your word and the worship of you. So we thank you for what you are doing with those who are here, and we look forward to your word and how it will change and transform our thinking. In your name I pray, amen. Well, Luke chapter 10 is a passage that I don't know how many times you've had a chance to study, but it is one of the most fascinating portions of Scripture because something takes place here that you don't see anywhere else. We're introduced in chapter 10, verse 1, to a group of 70 people, 70 friends of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It says, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city where he was going to go. Our Lord chose 70 people, put them into 35 teams of two, and sent them to 35 different cities. Everywhere where Jesus was planning to visit, he sent an advanced team to go and to tell others about Christ. Their job was very simple. It was to walk into every town and say, this is who Jesus is, this is the message he's proclaiming, and this is what you need to know about him, what you need to do in light of that. What an incredible group. I mean, to be recruited for a cause is pretty exciting. And when the creator of the universe says, I need you, and I'm going to put you in this team, and the two of you are going to go together to that city, and you're going to accomplish this goal. It's an absolutely an amazing section. Verse 2 says, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Harvest, harvest, harvest. The word used over again, saying that the fields are ripe. Action needs to be taken now. We need more who can go to them. But verse 3 is so curious to me. It says, go 
Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, that's, that's vivid imagery. That's violent imagery. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to take care of lambs. When I was a kid, some different things happened. We had to move in with a relative. And the day we moved in with this relative, that relative decided to buy a couple of sheep. Because they thought it would be fun if the kids moving in with them got sheep. I don't know why, but the day we showed up, so did two sheep. And these little lambs grew up, and I learned what it was like to get headbutted by a lamb. You ever had that happen? You realize, okay, they, they don't have much of a defensive mechanism, but they can jump. What Christ is saying is, I'm sending you out as a, a lamb in the midst of wolves. Everything about this is dangerous. Everything about this says you're vulnerable. There's nothing about you that has protective elements in it. You're the lamb. And you're going into a context where everything around you wants to kill you. Oh, in verse 4, carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one along the way. You say, that is the weirdest instructions I've ever heard. Like, don't take anything with you. Don't carry any provisions. Don't carry any protection. Nothing, just go. I mean, this is, this is strange. These instructions that he's giving to them are extremely streamlined. Everything about this is on momentum. It's on immediate action. He's saying don't go back to your house and load up the U-Haul and then start traveling. Don't collect a team around you. Don't do any fundraising. Just go now. There's an urgency, a compulsion into action. He's not saying that there's a priority on being shoeless and no money belt. He's saying... Don't take anything else what you've got right now. Go now. No self-reliance. No extra clothes. Just go. He's saying get busy, stay busy. But then verse 5 says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be upon this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, he'll return to you. He's saying go into the city, and if you find a place to stay, stay there immediately. If they're welcoming to you, that's where you base If not, then just move on. He's saying whatever they give you to eat, you eat. Verse 8, whatever city you enter, they receive you. Eat what's set before you. Heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come to you. But whatever, verse 10 says, whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to your feet, we wipe off and protest against you. He's saying, you go in and you speak the gospel. You tell them why you came. And if there is an enjoyment of that, if there is a receptivity of that, then continue to minister there. If not, move on. And there's a strong warning given in verse 13, saying that it's going to be even better for these other cities. These cities are marked by sin than it will be for you in judgment. The reason he says that is because these other cities didn't have a gospel witness directly to them, but you do. There's a warning there for anyone who's heard the gospel and refuses to repent. There's a warning there for people who spend their time being familiar with the word of God, but never submit their heart to Christ. And so what Christ is doing is he sent these people out. He says, verse 16, the one who listens to you, listens to me. The one who rejects you, rejects me. And he rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. He's saying there's only two choices. Either you submit to God or you reject him and the eternal penalty for sin is going to be upon you you this is an incredible momentum this is a huge deployment of force 70 people going out that's a large crowd that spreads out across the known area 
as I said earlier, getting into every single city that Christ is eventually going to enter into. In this day, you could not send out an email or a text or advance warning. There was no alert system to tell somebody of others approaching. You had to send people out and carry that message by verbal proclamation. That's, that's exactly what they did. But look at verse 17. This is where this passage gets really interesting to me. Because in verse 17, you see the joy of ministry, the excitement of energy, ministry, the energy of ministry. It says the 70 returned with joy. They get back home, and it's like a locker room celebration after the Super Bowl. A huge gathering of everybody who participated in something. They come back, and they're exuberant over everything that took place. The Bible doesn't tell us how long it took for the 70 to get back. It doesn't say they all went out at once, and they all came back at once like a convoy. It says when they returned, and assuming that maybe some had a short distance, others had a longer distance, whatever the time element is, when all 70 returned, there was a joyful celebration that took place. Now just catch that for a second. Verse 1 told us that 70 were gathered and sent out. Verse 17 tells us that 70 returned. What does that tell you? Everybody lived. Hey, even if God sent you out with no provisions, no protection, nothing but you're a lamb in the midst of wolves, you still live to tell about it. There's an element right there of God's grace and protection upon these individuals that he had selected for his ministry. And they come back, and everyone has this word joy. Now, if you write in your Bible, that's a word to underline and highlight. There is joy. Everyone returned with joy. No one died. No one lost anything in it. They accomplished the mission that God had given them to do. This was a celebration. They got a little glimpse into God's victory that he gives to them over all of the enemy's forces. Look how verse 17 says this. Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons are subject to us. They walked into hell's forces. They walked into spiritual combat looking the evil one in the eye. And God gave the power for them to conquer even demons. This is significant. 1 John 5.19 says that the entire world lies in the lap of the evil one. They walked into towns where Christ was hated. Not by just the humans that are there, but by the enemy's forces that are there. They saw this firsthand. They were so excited because they had never seen this kind of power before. You know, this is significant because there's other illustrations where things didn't go the same way. You don't have to turn there. But in Acts chapter 19, there's an illustration where Scripture says that seven brothers banded together and they attempted to cast out demons. And they saw a man who was possessed by demons. And one of them says, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. And he says, I'm going to cast you out. Now, these seven brothers in Acts chapter 19, they didn't have any commission. They had no instructions to do this. They just snagged a phrase that they had heard others use and thought that somehow that, the magic was in the phrase, the wording, that they could just grab this power and use it. But listen to Acts chapter 19, verse 15. The evil spirit answers and says to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Now, that's a bad question. If the demons are asking, who are you? Then you realize you're out of bounds. Because the demons say, I know about Jesus, and I know about Paul, but why should I listen to you? That's a real problem. 
In fact, that's when they knew they were in trouble. Because verse 16 of Acts 19 says, The man in whom the was the evil spirit leapt on them, subdued all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. <laughs> that's one demon-possessed man beats up seven other men, strips them naked, and they go running out of the house beat up. They thought they could just speak some words and evict some demons. No wonder the 70 return with joy, because they saw God's ability to conquer not only human flesh and human heart and human desire, but to see God's ability to conquer even the forces of the enemy. These 70 are ecstatic, because the only explanation for the power is God did it. God did it. That's my prayer for all of us, no matter what our ministry endeavor is, no matter what you accomplish in a given day, no matter what you desire to do, the only explanation for our success is God did it. God gave them the power to engage in spiritual battles. Luke chapter 9 verse 1 says that he called, Jesus called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to heal diseases. They could fight like this. They could engage the enemy like this because they were doing it at the end of verse 17. In your name, for the glory of Jesus, to proclaim his power. In the name of Jesus, because Ephesians 1 verse 20 says, Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. It's in the name of Jesus that this work is done. It's because of the power of Jesus, because of his victory over sin and over death, because he rules and reigns on high, that this power can be demonstrated. He is the Lord. And as Colossians 1, 13 says, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And because he is ruling and reigning, his name is all-powerful. And these 70 celebrated, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now catch that and just put that in a box and hold it there. Because we've got to look at how Christ now responds. You would think that Jesus would come in and say, oh yeah, isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? That's exciting. You saw what I did. and Wow, that's great. But look at what Jesus does. He comes in and confronts them. I mean, you think that Jesus would jump in the middle of the celebration like a coach does when he comes in to the locker room and everyone's celebrating and excited and the coach jumps in the middle and they all dunk Gatorade on him and you think that, wow, this is going to happen. But Jesus comes in and almost just silences the party. He says, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I mean, catch this. Jesus says, I was there in the past. I was there before you all were created. I was there when Satan, who was an angel, rebelled and said, I want to be God. And he says, I was there. I was there. And in that instant, in that instant, when sin was found in Satan's heart, in that moment when he was evicted from heaven, he says, I was there. Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who weaken the nations. 
He's glancing back and said, yeah, you think that's powerful? That you had power over the demons and all that stuff? I was there when Satan was evicted. I watched it happen firsthand. Not only is it a past view, but there's a present reality. Not only was that seen in view from when Satan was thrown out, but with each demon that was cast out by these disciples, Satan was further dethroned. He was further incriminated. You know that there's a lot of people who think that Satan somehow has a realm that he, a kingdom that he operates in, this base called hell. And he kind of comes and goes from hell and comes back to earth and works back and forth between the two. It's not true. Satan and the demons live in fear of hell because they know what the future is. They know where they're going to be going. And when Jesus says, I watch Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And when the disciples come back and say, we cast them out in your name. What is going on is a spiritual battle that's so much bigger than the human mind can understand. Because this is reminding Satan of what his future is. That he is not in control over anyone. God rips us out of hell's grasp and secures us. This is divine power on display. This is divine power that's being demonstrated. Look at verse 19. He says, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. He says, I've given you that power. What you're celebrating is something that didn't come from you, something that didn't come from your magical words or the formulas you put together. What you're celebrating is something I already saw in the past, something I was present for, and something that I gave you the authority to do. He says, verse 19, to tread on, on serpents and scorpions. He's not talking about a divine extermination plan. He's not saying that your job is to go walk around and crush bugs and snakes. He's saying, I've given you the power over all of the enemy. And no matter what, you have divine protection that's placed on you. You get to live without fear. As Christians today, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of the Most High God, we have that same promise that we can live without fear. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. 1 John 4, 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is how God gives us protection over the enemy. That there's nothing that Satan or any of his forces, individual or collective, can do against us to hurt us. The shepherd, who is Jesus Christ, watches over his sheep and protects us. Mark down John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are great words. How comforting is that? That my sheep hear my voice, that you recognize the voice of your shepherd. A child knows the voice of his parents, right? You remember the voice of your dad or your mom, and if they've passed away, that voice is even more precious in your memory. But you know that voice. The same way a believer knows the voice of our Father, our Savior. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one snatches them out of my hand. No one takes us back from God. 2 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. Do you realize that? That right now, 
You have God as your defense against Satan and all of his forces? That between us and those who would like to destroy us is our Savior? If nothing else wakes us up in the morning, gives us encouragement, it should be that. Listen to 1 Peter 5, 8 and following. It says this, Be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. That's what Satan does. Satan is out there stalking, looking for an opportunity. 1 Peter 5 says, But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world, meaning you're not alone. You're not alone. There are others who are experiencing the same thing. But verse 10 says, After you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Perfect, confirm, strengthen, establish. All of that's in the category of God watching over us, the shepherd protecting us from Satan, that there is nothing that he can do to harm us. You see, what verse 18 and 19 are telling us is that Jesus is the source. Jesus is the source. He says, I, not you, not you and your circle, not you and your power, not you and your influence. It is I. It's Jesus Christ who's working in you because it's God who's working through you. This is the power of God that fuels the joy of ministry, that fuels the joy of service. But look at verse 20. This is what the central message of this part is. Verse 20 shows us the security that we have of eternal life. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. But catch this. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Nevertheless, do not rejoice that this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't celebrate that the demons fear you or that you're able to cast out demons or you're able to heal or you're able to help others. Don't celebrate you the resume you have of ministry, all the souls you've saved or work you've done. Don't celebrate that. What you celebrate is that your name is recorded in heaven. Let your mind just think on that for a moment. It's important to celebrate spiritual victories. It's important to look around and inventory the blessings of God and the power of God. It's important to stop and recognize how God has stomped out Satan's advances and demonstrates the power of the gospel. Liberate the hurting, heal the sick, brought glory to Christ. But what we don't rejoice in is the work we've done, the amount of ground that we've covered for Christ, or the number of people we've served, or the expansiveness of ministry, or the vastness of our reputation. What we celebrate is one thing that carries each of us, carries through each of us, that our name is written in heaven. Can you find anything more encouraging than that? I mean, right now, your name is recorded in heaven, in the book of life. Your name is written there, and you didn't write it. No one penciled you in. It wasn't slid in from the side. It's something that was put there by the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus wants these 70 to celebrate is the same thing that every one of us here who today know Jesus Christ can celebrate. That I may not have anything else to boast of. I don't have anything else to brag of. I don't bring to the cross any amount of worth. In fact, I can't even bring to the room any amount of value. 
what I can bring is the fact that my name is recorded in the book of life. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24, as was read earlier, says, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. You'll go around and show your SAT score. You don't walk around and say, hey, I took an IQ test and it's much better than yours. Like, we don't walk around and show the wisdom that we have. He says, let not the mighty man boast of his might. That's not just you going around and flexing all the time. That's you talking about your power and your influence, how you could sink someone's career with just a word. And you can melt someone's desires and kill all their dreams by just sending out a simple tweet or email. You don't boast of your might. He says, don't let a rich man boast of his riches. You don't have to speak verbally to do that. It's that cocky attitude you have because you know what you've got in the bank account. He says, don't boast of your wisdom, your riches, your might. But if you want to boast, boast of this, that you know and you understand God. That you understand and you know our creator. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. He says, that's what you just, that's what you boast of. That's what you celebrate. That's what you proclaim. Because those are the things that are true of us. Because God has made them true of us. Listen, your name may not be written in the Guinness Book of World Records. Your Your name may never show up in the who's who of any list. You may have never made the dean's list. You may not be on an honor roll anywhere, best dress, best potential. You'll never make the Hollywood Walk of Fame. You, could, you may have never shown up in any notoriety anywhere. But it doesn't matter because your name is in the book of life. It's so important that we remember this. Because in a world that craves attention, in a world that craves honor and recognition, in a world that celebrates success at any level and boasts of anything we can possibly grasp, Jesus says, you think it's powerful that you saw demons cast out? Yeah, I saw Satan cast out. I mean, that's like bigger or better. Like, I saw the original, and there's nothing there to celebrate. What you celebrate is that your name is in the book of life, recorded in heaven. That gives us hope in the present and hope in the future. Hope in the present, knowing that I'm forgiven of my sin, 1 John 1, 9, that if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That gives us protection, as we just said, protection against all of Satan's attacks. It gives us hope that Christ is interceding for us, that he is at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case for us. It gives us hope through trials, knowing that God accompanies us in the person of the Holy Spirit as he indwells us. It gives us hope for the future, knowing that a home is being prepared for us that we will one day inherit and one day see. It gives us hope for the future in that we can lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. It gives us hope for the future in that there's a fellowship ahead where there's reunion with those we love who've gone before us into eternity. It gives us the joy of knowing that there is endless peace and worship of our Savior ahead of us. Because we have our name recorded in heaven in a way that no one can remove. This passage is powerful for us. It's a solid reminder that our hearts need to know that God looks at us and gives us what we need to accomplish this task. Protecting us, providing for us, but giving us a reason to celebrate. Not for something we've done 
for, for something he has already done. It could be for you that you don't have the confidence that your name is recorded in heaven. It could be that you know about that book, but you don't know if you're in that book. It could be that you're aware of what it means to know Christ, but you don't know Christ. If that's the case for you, then today's the day to turn from your sin and ask Christ's forgiveness of your sin. Ask him to give you his blessing and the assurance of salvation that can only come when we submit to Christ. For those who do know Christ as Lord and Savior, this is the truth that we celebrate. And we celebrate in every single day as we wake up and reflect on what he's done to forgive us of our sin. But we also celebrate it as the church gathers in communion. And in just a moment, we'll do that together. Pray with me. Father, thank you again for your word and its clarity and its power that with just such simple and efficient words, you remind us that we don't celebrate what we have done, even if doing it is in your name and for your glory. What we celebrate is that you have saved us. You have forgiven us of our sin. You have transformed us. You have transferred us from the domain of darkness into the domain of light. You've rescued us from an eternity in hell and give us, given us an eternity in heaven. That we no longer serve sin in our flesh, but we serve you. So Father, as we would celebrate, as we would find joy and find reasons to be hopeful, may it always be that our names are recorded in the book of life. Until the day, Lord, that we see you face to face. In your name, amen.